Monday, a K-pop podcast with me, Zia J. I'm super excited to bring you this episode, of course, with this week's news and reviews, but also with the first part of an interview with Dr. Sarah Keith, a senior lecturer at Macquarie University who has a special research interest in K-pop. Don't forget to follow the show on the socials at Monse Podcast on Instagram and Twitter and tell people about it. That's the biggest way that you can support the show right now. And such a big thank you from me personally to everyone who already does. But let's get into this week's news. A lot of the news this week is about contract signings, renewals, expiries, negotiations, all of that business stuff. It was officially announced this week that JB of GOT7 has signed to Higher Music, founded by rapper J Park. There had been rumours about this since early this year, so it's not particularly surprising, but it is exciting to see JB and all the other members of GOT7 finding new places to continue their careers. YG Entertainment released a statement this week that their contract with actress and 21 member Sundara Park has expired and will not be renewed. Sandara Park had been with JYP for 17 years and debuted with them 11 years ago. I'm excited to see her continue her career with undoubtedly many directions to choose from. On the other hand, Jellyfish Entertainment announced this week that Kim Sejong had renewed her contract with them. The former IOI and Gugudan member has released several solo tracks and is continuing to pursue a career in acting, also supported by Jellyfish. Some exciting news, especially for us international K-pop fans. K-Contact 4 has announced their run dates and released the first artist lineup. The fourth online version of K-Con will take place over nine days, from June 19th to 27th, and will host B2B, Golden Child, Icon, Highlight, One Us, On and Off, SF9, and Weki Meki. These are already some super exciting names to see, and this is only the first announcement, so I'm expecting some pretty big headliners at K-Contact 4. Now, let's get into this week's comebacks. We kicked off the week with NCT Dream, Oh My Girl, and VAV all releasing new music on the same day, so let's talk about those. NCT Dream came back with Hot Sauce. It's really stripped back in terms of instrumentals and relies a lot on the catchy chanting vocals in the chorus. SM Entertainment likes to give their artists songs with Latin and South American influences, and I do like that element in this track. I think it melodically adds a lot. The writing and production team is just huge in terms of numbers, and I think that's a big part of it. They brought on a few new writers specifically for their experience with Latin and South American music. I'll be honest, I don't know if this track entirely lands for me. It is catchy, but it doesn't do anything super interesting musically or vocally, and I did want to see that from this comeback. I like NCT Dream, but I think I was maybe just expecting a little bit more. Oh My Girl's new track is called Dun Dun Dance, and it's a super cute dance pop track. With a real funky bass line and strong vocals from all the members, Dun Dun Dance may not be anything wildly new, but it is Oh My Girl being very good at what they do. The writers on this track have worked with not only some of K-pop's biggest female artists, but made some of their biggest songs, and I'm glad that they brought all that expertise to this. Both the song and the music video remind me a bit of girl group songs from around kind of 2015, Red Velvet's Ice Cream Cake, that kind of era. 
So if that's your thing, absolutely do check out this track. VAV also came back with Always, a really sweet ballad. We've seen a few boy groups really bringing out the vocals lately, but VAV is just another level. They are so good at this. Complex vocal harmonies, beautiful, beautiful tones, all over this simple live instrument track. Always is a really light and gentle and lovely spring vibe for VAV. One Us also had their comeback this week with Black Mirror. As you probably know by now, I love a strong bass line, and this one is just so tasty, and I love that it gets its moment in the chorus. This is really classic K-pop for me, reminiscent of the kind of late 2000s era with dramatic style shifts between different parts of the song, some really shiny visuals, and a super catchy beat. I don't know if this is my favourite One Us song, but I do like it, and I think it's a fun concept for them right now. Lately, they've been staying on the bit more kind of edgy side of things, so it's nice to see something that's a bit more familiar. G-Idol's Yuki had her solo debut this week with Giant. I love that this focuses on the lower range of her voice. She's so strong with those vocals, and it's perfect for this kind of anthemic style of song. I also cannot say how much I enjoyed the instrumental, especially in the chorus. While some of the percussion is digital, there's these gorgeous live electric guitar lines and solo parts, as well as some subtle violin in there. I wasn't expecting a song I could headbang a bit to, but she does it so, so well. I'm a big fan of rock music, and this song would absolutely hold its own in that genre. This coming week has some big releases from JB, Esper, Temin, and of course BTS. If there's anyone else you think I should be watching out for, feel free to let me know on the socials over at Monse Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. But on to this week's interview. This is the first part of my discussion with Dr. Sarah Keith about K-pop and its presence in the academic world. I really enjoyed getting to ask about some of the research that I found interesting and just generally learning about the things that researchers learn about K-pop. But I'll hand it over to myself and Dr. Keith to get into that more. Okay, Dr. Sarah Keith, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with me. If you'd like to just introduce yourself and maybe start with when you kind of discovered K-pop and what you do now with your research. Sure. My name is Sarah Keith and I'm a senior lecturer in media and music at Macquarie University. So I discovered K-pop in about 2011, which was when the television program SBS Pop Asia started and that aired on Sunday morning. And it was really new to me because I had been working generally in the music research field for a while. I had um, been studying music academically, but K-pop kind of really took me aback because I've got a bit of a personal history with Korea. Um, I used to live there as a child in the 1980s, so when I was really young. And I remember Korea as quite an industrial place without really much of a popular culture to speak of. Television at the time was uh, very, very limited. Uh, there was really not much in the way of a youth culture at all. So I was really surprised that K-pop had, you know, in the 20 years or so since I left Korea, had become a 
major global popular music. So it really surprised me. And I became interested in the story of how Korean popular culture went from a very, very, um, you know, limited or marginal kind of popular culture to something which people were really seeking out and getting interested in, obviously not just in Korea, but across Asia and across the world. So that's the story of how I became interested in K-pop. I guess more broadly, my research is about disruption in the music industry. So I see K-pop as a kind of disruption. For decades, probably half a century or more, popular culture globally and in Australia has been really Anglo, Anglophile, Anglo-centric. So Australia really looks a lot towards the USA and towards the UK for its popular culture. So K-pop is interesting because it kind of disrupts that. And now people are not just getting their popular culture from the US and the UK, but also from Asia. And I do acknowledge that other kinds of, um, there's also J-pop and manga and other kinds of popular culture, but I think K-pop has reached the sort of public consciousness in a, in a more profound way than previous pop culture has. Um, so I guess the main interest initially for me was simply why do people like K-pop? What is it that draws them to this new kind of popular music? And what, why are they choosing to listen to K-pop as opposed to, you know, US hip hop or um, popular music from the U UK? So that's kind of where I started with my, my research. Yeah. That's really interesting to me, I guess, as a fan. And I think the reason I always start these episodes, all of my guests, which are often also K-pop fans, um, asking about how they got into K-pop is, yeah, it's really interesting to see how it has kind of disseminated across different countries and different cultures. Are there things, are there kind of, uh, is there a bit of a storyline that you've found about how K-pop has spread and why it's so popular? I had a th I have a theory. Um, and I guess firstly, well, K-pop spread outside of Korea firstly into Japan. So thinking into the um, about the early 2000s artists like BOA and TVXQ going into Japan and also into places like China. So I think that for a lot of um, Asian Australians, Chinese Australians or Japanese Australians, K-pop is known as a kind of music that is popular among their community. And um, like I remember distinctly going into Daiso, you know, Daiso, the, mm. the sort of Japanese homewares chain and hearing K-pop in there. And I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. So I guess this is part of the Japanese sphere of popular music as well. So I think a lot of awareness of K-pop in Australia came through um, the Chinese Australian community, the Vietnamese Australian community, the Indonesian Australian community, the sort of places where K-pop was um, seeded first outside of Korea. And thence, from, from then on, K-pop has, of course, grown globally. And of course, groups like Blackpink and BTS have a really global um, awareness. But I think at first it was a much more niche thing and a particularly Asian Australian phenomenon. Um, so I think that's how it, it kind of first spreads in Australia. From, from, my, um, from my point of view. I've, I've spoken to a few uh, K-pop fans from various places. 
who are Asian Australian and also not Asian Australian. And I think one of the one of the really interesting things that K-pop presents is is a kind of alternative to mainstream uh, Western popular music, if you like. So I remember speaking to um, a Fijian Australian fan who who I think was drawn to K-pop because it was not the sort of westernized popular music which might be judged by people in her community and her family as something that's kind of not appropriate for her. It's too far away from her family values and her culture. But K-pop is a little bit closer. It's a kind of popular music that might be seen as a little bit more wholesome, a little bit more pro-social than Western popular music. So I think it's it's a kind of alternative popular music for a lot of people. It's not it's not Western popular music, which has a certain connotation for some people, but it's a music that's a little bit more uh, more acceptable or more close to their own culture. Yeah, yeah. It's that's really interesting, and I think I've seen in the academic work I've seen, I think there's a bit more movement towards recognizing that K-pop not just as like, or I guess the growth of K-pop not just as a phenomenon on its own, but about people looking to, yeah, an alternative kind of pop culture when, especially when they're in a dominant kind of white or, or Eurocentric culture that doesn't, that they don't connect with so much. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is certainly a, a kind of pride in in being Asian Australian and and having that kind of representation. But interestingly, there are also complexities there. So let, I was speaking to um, someone who was Thai Australian and he was saying, yeah, I love K-pop, but my mum just can't understand why I listen to K-pop and not Thai popular music. So although he feels he feels that it's kind of something that represents his culture in a sort of general Asian sense, um, there are also questions about, you know, why not Thai popular music if you're Thai? So there are a lot of um, complexities and contradictions that are interesting to think about as well. For sure. And and I think, yeah, it's interesting to me because I was introduced to it um, in the country school that I grew up in by a Malaysian music teacher. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, she taught at my school for a couple of years and she introduced me and my classmates with groups like TVXQ. I think Westerners, well, I guess white people especially, tend to see K-pop as kind of starting with like Gangnam style and starting with the kind of very Western perception of K-pop when it started to come into this kind of Western public view. And yeah, it's interesting, I think, seeing a lot of that in media and in pop culture now and then not having that experience myself but also going more into fandom and especially Asian communities in like in Australia, in the US, in the UK, and seeing a lot of stories from people that they, it was something that was around for them a lot earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I got into K-pop a little bit before Gangnam Style kind of hit the mainstream in a big way. And it was interesting to observe other people discovering this kind of world of what Korean Korea produces pop music and it sounds good. I never knew about this. Mm. That was a kind of prevailing attitude among many commentators of, Hey, wow, look, this is catchy music coming out of Korea. Who knew? Um, so that was interesting for me to kind of observe, 
But at the same time, I'm size Gangnam Style is a really interesting case study because I think in a way it it exists within the realm of K-pop, but at the same time, I don't know anyone who discovered K-pop and became a fan because of Gangnam Style. Um, yeah. it, I sort of see it as more of a viral hit rather than, you know, a, a thing that got people into K-pop. I mean, it made people realize that K-pop existed, but it didn't really directly gather fans, I don't think. But yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Sai, who's, you know, such a mainstay of the industry and he's, he's done a lot of interesting things but i think he's a bit of an outlier when it comes to the globalization of k-pop yeah i think my own i guess observations as a fan that's absolutely true i think a lot of people um especially people who didn't necessarily pay much attention to korea prior to gangnam style that was for a lot of people the kind of like oh korea has a pop culture yeah and Maybe people have come across K-dramas before, but especially in terms of music. But I think, yeah, I don't think I've seen Psy referenced as people's, like, gateway into K-pop very much. No, not really. I mean, if anything, Psy comes up in studies on viral media and on global media, but not really in K-pop circles, yeah. But what you were saying earlier about um, how you were introduced to K-pop through a teacher at your school... So that was a music teacher, was it? A, a, a Malaysian music teacher? Yeah, so um, I went to a really tiny country school. And so in uh, year 10, there was me and three other students in our music class. So there was a lot of flexibility about what we kind of covered there. And so we did, yeah, my teacher was like, here, like, let's look at another culture's music here's k-pop and yeah i did a project on ukis and it kind of was all downhill from there but it yeah it was a uh, now i'm trying to make this my career but it's yeah wow amazing <laughs> yeah. cool so what i find also really interesting is how possibly less these days how k-pop spreads socially and from person to person and how it's a really social undertaking so you heard about it not I mean, this was some years ago, I'm guessing, um, based on the fact that you were doing your project on UKIS, um, that you heard about it from your teacher. And there's, I mean, another thing that comes up in the fans that I spoke to is how K-pop is such a great way to meet people and to, to kind of build social groups. Um, I remember one person telling me, you know, if you if you walk into a tutorial at university or something and you see someone with a, let's say, a, a twice sticker on their laptop, you can strike, a, strike up a conversation with them immediately. And that's like an inbuilt friendship because you're both you're both part of the same kind of cultural niche, you know, about, you know, K-pop, you know, who's your favorite member? You know, what do you think of this song? What do you think of this scandal or whatever? Um, so it's a really it's a really um, powerful social phenomenon as well as a sort of global media phenomenon. I mean, my, my daughter, who's seven, she is already making friends at school through K-pop. And she's already saying, you know, I told her to Google this song. This is my favorite song. And she told me to listen to this song. And it's, a, it's just a really powerful thing for people, you know, whether they're young or whether they're gr grown. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I think, yeah, I've 
been looking over a lot of um, academic work, especially on K-pop fandom, because that's particularly something I'm interested in at the moment. And I think that's a really, really common story from a lot of fans is this like a friend introduced me, whether it's a friend in real life or a friend online or I, yeah, someone I know went to a concert or something like that. And it, I think it's interesting how, like, obviously it's about the music and all of that, but it's such a big social thing. And then obviously that develops into close fan communities as well. Yeah, absolutely. And communities coming together to do, sometimes it's about, you know, supporting your group. Sometimes it's about doing charitable work or doing, um, you know, good deeds through your group or raising awareness of an issue or things like that. So it's, it's a really, um, powerful thing that that occurs I mean one of the interesting things about k-pop fandom is it's really difficult to define who fans are Mm. because of course there are those fans out there on social media who are you know producing content but I I know that there are also fans who don't do any of that who just really love groups watch YouTube videos but don't really speak to anyone and I remember um yeah, I spoke, I spoke to two men, one was in his 40s and one was in his 20s, who were really just kind of private K-pop fans. They loved K-pop, but they didn't really speak to anyone about it. It was just their own little thing. And um, yeah, so there's, there's also the, I suppose, non-social aspect of K-pop, which might be due to preconceptions about, you know, what the right music to listen to is, and maybe they're scared of being judged if, they're, if they come out as K-pop fans, if you like. Or maybe it's just something that they feel that their friend group wouldn't appreciate. So, yeah, defining exactly who fans are and what constitutes fandom is a really interesting question as well. Um, I mean, the typical fan probably in most people's minds would be a female of the ages between 15 and 20. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily the case. We know that there are older fans. We know that there are male fans. We know that there are fans that don't participate in typical fan-like activities of, say, producing content on social media or doing other kinds of social activities. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, just thinking about who fans are is a really interesting question in itself. For sure. And I think, yeah, I guess as a fan, it's pretty common to see some gatekeepery activity among fans of, like, how do you know that you're a real fan? How do you know that someone else is a real fan? Um, But I I think it's, I don't know, obviously that happens sometimes, but I think it happens less than some other fandoms that I've been involved in. And it's interesting, especially at this point when kind of K-pop is so well known that you have, I think it's more, it's less surprising to people that there is such a wide variety of fans I think it's interesting that it's becoming more and more accepting to different types of fans, or at least it seems like it is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, K-pop has certainly become less of a subculture and a little niche. It's really become much more, well, firstly, much more widely available and what much more mainstream. Um, so, I mean, of course, K-pop's widely available on Spotify, so it'll it'll turn up in playlists that aren't even dedicated to k-pop um it might come up in like global top 50 or something like that so people are more likely to encounter k-pop in their day-to-day lives without specifically 
even needing to look for it. And I think there are more efforts to make K-pop global as well. So we've seen a lot of collaborations with artists who are you know, not in K-pop, so BTS and Halsey, for instance, or using songwriters that aren't Korean. That's mm-hmm. happening more and more. Um, even kind of experimental projects like KDA, which mm-hmm. are firstly like animated and virtual, but they're also using um, Korean artists and non-Korean artists and bringing them together. Um, so it's interesting to see how K-pop is kind of shifting into something which is a little bit more consciously global and international rather than just being something that's limited to the Korean production center, if you like. Yeah, it, that's been a really interesting shift because, yeah, I got into K-pop kind of, yeah, around 2012. Um, and then I left it alone for a little bit and came back in 2016. And I think that shift to being more global and being more appealing to Western artists and things like um, Monster X releasing their album entirely in English, like these things that are really different to what would have happened kind of, I guess, 10 years ago at this point or even longer ago, further ago than that. I think that shift to um, playing more with what is K-pop and what is global music and how you kind of incorporate the Koreanness of K-pop into music that is um, more familiar to especially Western listeners. I think it's a really interesting dynamic that's happening at the moment. It, it really is so interesting. And what you said about Monster X's English album, um, I mean, we've kind of seen this before in Japan when TVXQ released, well, a lot of groups, in fact, released Japanese language versions of their Korean albums. Um, but now we're seeing it happening in English as well. And I think there's this real fine line that a lot of artists are walking between being known as a Korean artist and also making a splash globally. Because, I mean, how important is it to be known as a K-pop artist? Why not just a pop artist? And I think the K-pop name is kind of a, it's a useful branding exercise for K-pop as a whole. And, you know, there is a kind of, um, a kind of brand recognition of K-pop, if you like. And, This also ties back to uh, interesting questions about the Korean government and its support of its own cultural industries and K-pop as like the calling card for for contemporary South Korea. K-pop has been really important in getting people to understand more about the the nation of South Korea and understanding that it's, it's a really global cosmopolitan place. In music videos, we see uh, beautiful people, beautiful scenery, high-rise cities and it's kind of a way of opening the world's eyes to Korea. So I think maintaining that Korean connection is really important but there's this balancing act of you know staying Korean while also being global that that um, I think a lot of artists are kind of negotiating. Um, yeah it's, it, it's really interesting and there of course are multinational groups like Blackpink um, who not only are global, but are also cultivating particular links with, let's in Blackpink's case, Thailand. Um, mm. So Blackpink, I noticed last time I went to Thailand, there was, well, Lisa was everywhere. 
there were literally banners in the streets. She had some kind of um, sponsorship deal with a lo- with a shopping mall or a shopping chain in Thailand. So there are all these kinds of threads between particular countries as well as um, the global market and Korea that that exist. So yeah, it's it's fascinating, and for every group, it's different and it changes. And yeah, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think definitely um, different companies, different entertainment labels focus on, I guess, different areas. Like I think SM Entertainment tends to focus on focus on East and, East and Southeast Asia a lot more, um, whereas mm-hmm. uh, artists like J- or, or companies like JYP um, and like Big Hit Now or HYB are focusing much more on Western markets. And I think it's interesting seeing kind of how they do that. And I think you're absolutely right. The the um, nationality of members plays a really big part in that. Yeah. And I've noticed a lot of activity in South America as well. Um, mm. No, no particularly high profile groups, but there is a lot of activity there with, I mean, K-pop is really popular in South America. Um so uh, there are a lot of little concerts that are happening there and fan groups and activities and things like that too. I think it's, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Where people's kind of focus and attention lies because yeah, South America has a huge K-pop scene and every artist that goes there, they always talk about how, how crazy the concerts are and how intense the fans are. But I think we tend to also dismiss that in, or, or pay less attention to that. I think in a similar way that we tend to pay less attention to um, Southeast Asia, especially in the Southeast Asian um, K-pop fandom and market. I think that the kind of global North versus global South is a really interesting dynamic when we're talking about the attention that's paid to K-pop. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Indonesia is one of the biggest and most active markets for K-pop. But I guess it is not such a focus for agencies because perhaps um, there isn't as established, there isn't such an established infrastructure for music distribution or for touring. I don't know. It might just be a little bit more complex to to really capitalize on Indonesia as an audience territory than other places. But yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about the differences in um, in k-pop um and how markets are seen by k-pop and further on to that this is kind of coming back to the fan discussion that we had earlier but k-pop means different things in different places so a study of k-pop fans in indonesia will be will have completely different findings to a study of k-pop fans in vietnam or thailand there are all these very particular local um, sensitivities or considerations that play into the exact significance of K-pop in these places. I mean, in Australia, I think that there's a lot of connection to the whole idea of an Asian diaspora in Australia, but that doesn't apply to, say, Southeast Asia. It doesn't apply so much to um, South America. Of course, there are some Koreans in South America, but there's also a whole different aspect there. so there is so much variety in K-pop fandom globally that um, you could do a study in every different country and find different things. Mm, for sure. And I 
I think I've found looking through, yeah, especially research on K-pop fandom, that a lot of works do tend to specify the the fans that they're talking to and their location because it has such a big impact on their experiences and and how they kind of develop their community and how they view k-pop it's a it really varies quite wildly yeah yeah it does and that's where we'll wrap it up for today in the next episode we'll talk more about what research into k-pop looks like and what academics are looking to in the future of k-pop If you like this episode and maybe want to hear more like it, please do subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're using and let me know what you think on the socials at Monse Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. This is still a baby podcast, so all I really want people to do to support it is share it. As always, links to all my sources are in the show notes and you can find all the other links you need in the card there as well. This podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. This is stolen land, with sovereignty never ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. I've been your host, Zia J, and I'll catch you next week for the next episode of Munse, a K-pop podcast. Music